This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It is my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people who are shaping the future of the agriculture industry. And I'm going to shoot you real straight right now and tell you we have an awesome episode for you here today. This is You're going to find so much interesting stuff about this episode that you probably didn't know before. I grew up in Sonoma County, California, which is supposed to be wine country, USA, and I learned a great deal about growing grapes in this episode. You may have glanced at it and thought, well, boy, Tim's getting a little bit long-winded in this episode, and that's not the case at all. What, what we really get is an end-to-end view of how grapes are produced, and it is fascinating. So you're going to understand how how farmers are looking at and implementing new technology. You're going to get the story behind wine and all of the work that goes in to make sure that the grapes are perfect uh, so that your wine is just the way you like it. And you're going to understand a little bit better how complex and sophisticated farming is. Really, I love this episode. I I asked about a million questions in here, and I think I could have asked another million questions because I just think this is fascinating. So you're going to listen to this and you're going to, number one, probably want to go plant some grapes in your backyard. And number two, the next time you go to your local uh, winery or you go to wine country, you're going to wow your friends with your knowledge of how grapes are grown. This was so much fun. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This is my interview with Richard Hoff, who's the director of viticulture at Mercer ranches in Washington state. So sit down, have a bottle of wine and enjoy this interview. Yep. So we, uh, we're, we're a relatively young vineyard company, which has been actually nice for mechanization as far as having things consistent, uh, as far as trellis and things like that and, and vineyard spacings. Um, but yeah, we have about 3,300 acres of wine grapes and, uh, the majority of that's been planted here in the last 10 years. And we've got, you know, a varieties range. We uh, a lot of Cabernet, uh, Syrah, Merlot, um, Riesling, Sauve Blanc, Chardonnay, and we've got about tw- twenty plus varieties. Wow, that I mean, twenty sounds like a lot. Is that is that normal for a Washington vineyard to have so many different varieties? You know, it's it's not unusual, especially for someone of our size. Um, yeah, that's I wouldn't say that's unusual. Yeah, you can. The cool thing about Washington, obviously, I'm a little biased, but you can really grow any wine grape style here hmm. because we we exist here in the rain shadow of the Cascade Mountains, and so we're we're almost in the high desert here. We get anywhere from four to ten inches of uh, precipitation on a 12 month basis. Um, and we have an adequate uh, irrigation supply uh, for us personally via the Columbia River. Other folks are on canal systems or on wells. Um, but in this kind of dry, arid climate, it's perfect for wine grapes. You can grow the canopies as big or as small as you want them and kind of uh, impose uh, stress or a lack thereof on the grapes um, at opportune times to kind of grow the style you want. And, and why, why grow so many different varieties? I mean, is that mainly just for diversification or what's the thought process behind maybe adding a variety? You know, in Eastern Washington, this has been, it's been on a rapid growth phase for the last few decades. And because of that, there hasn't been a lot of speculative um, planting yet. It's, it's really been, fun, all the planting has mostly been funded by winery needs. Hmm. 
So most growers have a relationship with a winery or a few wineries, and typically the wineries have, you know, they have a, a need for that variety and will work with a grower uh, to contractually plant. And so most growers are planting with the contract in hand, not all, uh, but most. It, so that's usually what's driving the, the variety. And, and so that contract uh, from, from planting a, a, a new um, a new vineyard to actually that winery getting grapes, how long of a time span is that generally speaking? It depends how much lead time you have from planning as far as like securing good material for the nursery a couple years out, hopefully. Um, if you're able to plant, you know, in, in a really mild winter, we can start planting around Valentine's Day. And if you start planting that early in the year and you're uh, Johnny on the spot with your uh, irrigation installation and everything, and you can get water on them early, you could get a crop in that next year. Oh, wow. Uh, so it really just depends on how well you're able to develop your vineyard in that first year, how early in the year you can. Uh, it, it's common for a lot of folks to get um, their first crop in year three, though, as well. So year two, year three. Okay. And and obviously, that's not a full, that's not a full crop. Sorry. You know, you might be looking at, say, a half ton or a ton per acre if you're able to get crop in uh, year two. Um, where like, you know, eventually you'll probably be getting up to maybe five tons an acre for reds and seven tons an acre for whites. When you get a, a mature vineyard, you know, maybe in your, in year four. And, and generally speaking, and I'm sure this, this, uh, varies quite a bit, but, um, how long will you keep a, a, a vineyard in operation before you pull it out and replant? Most people are, you know, probably budgeting for uh, three to four decades. Wow. Um, but it can be longer. Uh, some of it has to do with, uh, doing a good job of sourcing um, clean material, virus-free material um, at the time of planting. Um, there are viruses that can spread uh, exponentially um, in a vineyard. If you if you start dirty, insect vectors can, can move them around and that can shorten the life of your vineyard. But yeah, in general, I mean, there's vineyards in Washington that were planted in the 60s and 70s that are still producing and vineyards in California, I know that are a lot older than that, that are, uh, that are still producing. Yeah. I always wonder when I see a bottle of old vines in and like, well, how old are we talking about here? Yeah. I've heard of Zinfandels old as a hundred years producing still. Wow. I don't know, uh, what the stand count is in those vineyards, meaning like how many vines have died. Right. Right. <laughs> if they're at a hundred percent population still or not, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's some pretty old vineyards out there. And so what happens for, for you in that case, if a vine does die, I mean, is it a regular occurrence that you go in and plant? a new vine in a vineyard? You know, as a vineyard gets older, and there's not a magic date for this, but even, you know, you got a 10-year-old vineyard and you're trying to replant in there, those replants just really struggle to compete with those mature root systems. Hmm. And they, they never do all that great. So some people do continue to replant over the years. Some people will layer where they take a, uh, a one-year-old cane and they from an adjacent vine that's not dead and kind of angle it at a 45-degree angle towards where the dead vine used to be and bury that. And uh, every bud has root initials and placed in the proper environment, like, you know, moist soil will produce roots. So you have, what you'll end up having is like an umbilical cord. That one-year-old cane becomes an umbilical cord to a new vine that you're starting where that cane was buried. Right. Um, and then further, you could do extensions, which is what we're typically doing, where you're just, uh, you're laying down a one-year-old cane from an adjacent vine on the permanent uh, trellis. And that's becoming just basically a longer arm and eventually you just fill in that empty space on the wire with the adjacent vines okay that's pretty cool and that tends to work a little better for mechanization as well once once you start getting is like now that i'm fully mechanized it's it's a lot harder to deal with baby vines out there so extending the adjacent vines tends to be a little friendlier from that perspective as well yeah 
No, I think that this is fascinating and I do want to get more into the mechanization stuff too. But, but before we do, I'd love to give people an idea on, um, on sort of the, the economics of just, you know, viticulture in general. And so you, you mentioned, you know, when you're really producing maybe four plus years into a vineyard, you're, you're seeing like five to seven tons per acre, which, um, that sounds like, you know, that's a, that's a lot of grapes, uh, from an economic standpoint, especially considering a lot of listeners are used to like Midwest row, row crops, uh, what could be the range on a ton of grapes, uh, the value of it, like straight off, straight out of a vineyard? You know, it, it really varies wildly. So uh, you, I could pick a variety like, say, Riesling, which has been in an oversupply situation for much of the last five to 10 years. Um, it's starting to come into balance, but there's been an oversupply. And so, you know, I think I've heard of it selling as cheap as like maybe 650 a ton, 700 a ton. Um, and then you can get high end Cabernet or Petit Verdot from, from, you know, sought after areas or vineyards, um, that might go for a few thousand dollars a ton, hmm. you know, maybe $3,000 a ton, maybe, maybe even $4,000 a ton. And, and all of that is generally contracted ahead of time. Sounds like with directly with the, the, the winery. Generally. Yes. Yep. There are, there are smaller growers that are, are working maybe with smaller wineries which need change from time to time that are trying to sell stuff on the open market. But most of the larger growers are dealing with long-term contracts um, for the most part. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I know, I know uh, from talking to you, a big part historically of, of your costs um, when we're talking kind of the economics of vineyards, your costs have been in labor. So can you paint us a picture of, of um, you know, kind of before you started on your big initiative to, to mechanize uh, sort of some of the labor, labor challenges you were facing? Sure. And that's a great way to actually frame it, by the way, because we weren't really looking at this from the perspective of economy necessarily. You know, we're located in a very remote area. I mean, at one of my vineyard, larger vineyard locations, our closest um, town is 45 minutes away. Others are farther. We have another vineyard that's about an hour and 10 minutes away from the closest city. Um, so it's just, it's really hard to scale an operation that requires um, a larger hand labor force every year as you keep planting. Um, so that was really the impetus for us to get into the whole mechanization um, uh, deal in the, be in the beginning. And let me ask a quick question on that. So um, I, I thought about this earlier. I forgot to ask you, you're a 10 year old vineyard, more or less. Uh, how much of that 3,300 acres got planted year one or how much of it gets planted kind of uh, in, in annual installments? You know, we've been on kind of a three to 500 acres a year growth curve um, is, since I've been with the company. And we, we've just kind of slowed down now. But yeah, so I mean, so we've got vineyards that are 10 years old and, and two years old and everything in between. Okay. So as you've been scaling at that rate, you've had to... Uh, you've, you've had to scale every aspect, not just the planting, but, but everything that comes after that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you there, but yeah, get, get back to the labor thing. So what was labor like for you before? Uh, so yeah, so labor before, you know, we were able to, we were definitely able to meet our needs. It, you know, it was tough every year. Like, you know, like I said, put more acres in the ground. That means you need a larger head count the following year. So you know, it was becoming tough to find A, enough people, but then B, um, it was getting to the point where also some of the new folks didn't have experience in, uh, in wine grapes. And so then the, the training was becoming difficult as well. And just looking long term, you know, the owner was looking at, you know, we're just not going to be able to find enough people out here to, to continue to sustain this operation. So we need to look at ways to mechanize tasks that don't need to be done by hand. Hmm. And that, that's really how we uh, started going down this road. And so we started with, uh, with pruning. That's a, that's a very uh, um, time-heavy operation that everyone has to, 
deal with in wine grapes. And, you know, it depends on your spacings and trellis systems, et cetera. But, you know, for us, it tends to be about a, a 30, 30 to 35 hours an acre um, operation. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we looked at that and uh, there was a precision pruner out of France um, by the Polanc company called uh, TRP. It's a French ac- acronym. And the, the TRP precision pruner with that tool, you know, we're able to cut our pruning costs uh, down considerably when you do the, the tractor driver and that tool and the, the hand follow-up that we do, you know, we're going from say 35 hours down to maybe five to seven, depending on the block. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, I always thought of pruning as a very precise thing. You've got to sort of see exactly where to make your cut and then make it. So how does the machine sort of account for that? Yeah. And, you know, so I'll just, I'll be honest. I mean, doing it by hand definitely looks better. So you kind of have to unteach yourself and, and be, you know, we're more numbers based more so than what looks mm-hmm. necessary really sexy mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um or my definition of sexy has changed actually because i think i think that looks quite good when you're done but it looks different and so the way that the way that tool works is that you basically set blades to a vertical height so typically when you've got hand pruners coming into a vineyard um they're coming through and they're removing horizontal wood and vertical wood meaning they're eliminating entire positions and then they're reducing other canes down to a set height, maybe two buds or three buds. So you're setting how many spurs you want and then how many buds per spur. Whereas in this tool, you know, you're not reducing the number of spurs. You can only reduce the height. So you can't control how many spurs you have, but you can set how high off the cordon um, they'll exist. So basically, uh, well, maybe I'll describe the vines a little bit and then I'll get into how the, the tool works. That'd be great. And maybe so define for everybody kind of a cordon, uh, trellis, a, a little bit of of uh, kind of uh, viticulture one-on-one terms. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. So the trellis is the uh, the permanent uh, metal, wood, and wire that the vine is trained onto. So that you were asking how long a vineyard lasts. That that wood that lasts for thirty years, fifty years, it's trained onto this trellis system. And uh, the standard in Eastern Washington is most people are on what's called a bilateral cordon. And to imagine what that looks like, it looks like the letter T. So a bilateral cordon is a permanent trunk that then splits and goes off in both directions on a cordon wire with uh, two arms uh, forming the T-shape. And so each arm is called a cordon, and that wire that runs parallel with the earth that they're resting upon is called the cordon wire. Okay, so, so the a cordon is, is the vine itself. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yep, so you have a permanent trunk, two permanent cordons. And they're trained onto a cordon wire, mm-hmm. which is secured to two end posts on both ends of the row. Yeah. And then intermittently between all those vines, uh, you have a series of T posts, like the, you would use for standard fencing, um, to hold that the cordon wire is secured to. And then between each each pair of T posts, you have two tall posts. And those tall posts are for holding your canopy wire, which is what we use to manipulate the canopy to where it grows vertically every year. Right. Um, so this TRP pruner is really following the cordon. So it has it has an optical an optical it has an optic uh, that's able to sense the cordon to read it and track it. And uh, every 250 millimeters of of linear feet. It's um it's reacting to that cordon hmm. and moving up or down as the cordon moves, um and you can change that height in five millimeter increments. So you can get pretty close to that cordon, and so the way it's cutting is so yeah you have those sensors that's tracking the cordon and adjusting every 250 millimeters up or down 
as the terrain of the cordon changes. And there's two 14-inch uh, blades behind those sensors. And those blades are overlapped just a little bit, maybe like 20 millimeters. And those two 14-inch saw blades are cutting at that 5 millimeter, 10 millimeter, et cetera, uh, height that you've set above the cordon. And that's the, that's the precision cut. And so the, the, the first time you kind of discovered this, uh, this was possible, you know, what, what, was your, what was your concern? When you, maybe you saw a video or someone told you about it, what was your concern with, like, how, how would this work for you? Well, you know, my, my boss actually purchased this tool uh, so we could try, try to use it in-house to experiment with it. Um, so really, we already had it. I grabbed the operation manual and uh, tried to figure out how, to, you know, how it worked. And we just went about playing. We picked, uh, we picked 75 acres and said, we're going to fully mechanize these blocks regardless of what it takes and just kind of put ourselves in that box um, to make it happen. Uh, but yeah, you know, I was, I was definitely concerned with, could I get my bud number down? Cause you're, when, when you have people in the vineyard, you can, uh, you can prune to exactly how many buds you want per vine per acre. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely a lot tougher with a, with a tool that's just set to a predetermined height. Hmm. Have you noticed any sort of yield difference since using this technology? No, you know, we've been able, that's been one thing that's, uh, that's been great. We've had some very willing partners as far as uh, wine customers that have uh, allowed us to use this program and some of their higher end blocks where their highest quality fruit is coming from. So we've, we've been able to get our tonnage as low as two and a half, three tons an acre for some of our higher end programs. And, you know, up in that seven uh, tons per acre and higher for other varieties that well, we're looking for that kind of tonnage as well. So we were really able to meet all of our tonnage goals. And you said the the difference in labor was from 35 hours an, an acre down to like five hours. And that's total from the mechanization to the uh, to the, the cleanup. Yep, exactly. So typically you would run in the hand operation, you'd be running a pre-pruner through that cuts maybe uh, two thirds of the, the, the canopy away before the crews come in by hand. So I'm including that. And then in the mechanization uh, vineyard, you're coming through with this precision pruner, the TRP, and then people are coming in by hand afterwards at a, say, three-hour to maybe five-man-hour per acre pass Okay, following it. And just out of curiosity, when, when do you usually prune vineyards? You know, in a perfect world, you would wait until the risk of winter damage is over since we can't have winter freeze events in Washington that can cause uh, bud damage. Mm-hmm. Um, but realistically, most people are starting maybe in December just uh, to make sure they can get across all their ground with their the size of their crew or as many tractors as they have in our case. Oh, wow. So, so, so yeah, we're typically starting uh, after Thanksgiving. So when do, when do vineyard managers get time off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know that it, it is different now we do joke about it you know it's, it's become it's definitely more of a cycle now we uh yeah we wrap up harvest and uh we get the pruners ready and we get right back to it wow that's intense well uh so other than pruning which i can definitely see where that where that machine could make a difference and it sounds like maybe the big the big change there that made that possible is is the optics to make sure you don't cut through the cordon is that right definitely you know that is a balance and this is where i go back earlier to having a younger vineyard that we've trained very well and we have the same trellis and we have gps plants and rows it makes that tool work better hmm. Because any kind of, um, you know, inefficiencies in your design or uh, variability in your trellis or your training will cause that tool to scrape a cordon or, or cut a cordon. Mm-hmm. Um, and even even now we deal with damage. You just have to find uh, an acceptable level. 
we tend to look at everything in linear feet now versus vines. Oh, that's So we look at big yeah. swaths of ground versus looking at individual vine because vine to vine, there's a little more variability in mechanization compared to what a hand crew can do for sure. But if you look over a, a big swath of uh, linear feet, um, you can get very similar results. And generally speaking, how many linear feet will there be in an acre? Uh, so we're mostly, so the easy way to find out linear feet per acre is you can uh, divide the row spacing into square feet per acre, which is 43,560. And we're mostly eight foot rows. So that's about 5,445 linear feet an acre. So about a mile an acre. Oh, wow. Less oh, that's pretty cool. In our typical spacing. Yeah, that's a cool way to think about it. You didn't know you were going to have to do math on the podcast, did you? I did it, you know, but those numbers, I make all of my supervisors and managers memorize that. So it's fair that I have them memorized too. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about uh, other than pruning, where else have you found uh, a lot of value in mechanization? Yeah. And so with the pruning, so you, you asked earlier about when we start and I'm comfortable starting in December because going back to just removing vertical wood and no horizontal wood, even when I'm being really aggressive and it looks just beautiful, we have a few too many buds for what we need for our final goal. And so I kind of look at this whole process as like a step. Every, every process gets this one, takes us one step down the stair step towards the ultimate yield goal. And so um, leaving a few more buds in winter is an insurance policy, and it also necessitates that we do some shoot thinning. Um, so the next thing we're mechanizing is desuckering, which, is all, which are all of the, the green growth that arises this year on the permanent trunk, and shoot thinning, uh, undesirable shoots and a, you know, additional yield that originates from the cordon, the permanent cordon this year. Mm -hmm. And so we have a tool that can come through and what was usually done by hand can remove all of those, uh, those new green shoots um, in one pass. <clears throat> and and uh, what, what would happen if you didn't remove those? You know, you could harvest for a year. Um, as far as the desucker, the desuckering is more of a long-term thing. You could get away with one year, but eventually you got to remove them because you would just lose the shape of your vine. They would, they would just keep growing upon, you know, each, each sucker would get bigger and bigger each year and kind of move into your canopy area. Okay. And then as far as getting rid of the shoots, um, you can get rid of those shoots during pruning, uh, but getting rid of them during the growing season, those shoots have clusters on them. And so it's, uh, it's another way of reducing yield to get closer to your goal as well. All right. So let's talk about that. Cause I think that's a little bit unique to, to vineyards versus other farms. Um, uh, why would you want to reduce your yield? So, uh, quality, so a, a winemaker would tell you that, um, vineyard yield and quality are on some kind of a linear, um, uh, graph. <laughs> and for every reduction in yield, you're going to get an increase in quality. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. It's more, it's more of a undefined bell curve, I would say. But there is some relationship where when you get too heavy, the vine cannot um, sufficiently ripen from a sugar perspective um, and then from a, a phenol perspective as well. So if you get too heavy, you start dealing with uh, higher acidity and lower uh, sugar in the grapes. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get um, reduced color, um, bitter and uh, herbaceous tannins. And so those are things you're trying to, um, you're trying to eliminate or reduce um, via cultural practices. And one of those cultural practices is, you know, keeping your yield within a, within a good range. Interesting. And, and is there, is, is there a lot of, of like data and science that goes into, okay, this acre should yield exactly 5.2 tons because that's where we have calculated is optimal between quality and quantity or, you know, I, I'm just curious about that, how that process works. You know, it, it's not quite that precise. Um, 
But I would say, you know, in general, in our in our growing region here, most people um, in what are called production blocks, where you're typically getting paid per ton, um, you're going to be shooting for about anywhere from five to six tons an acre in reds, mm-hmm. and anywhere from six to eight tons an acre in whites, depending on the contract. And uh, there's some science behind that and some subjectivity as well. And then for your higher end wines, you know, you could have customers asking for as little as two, two tons an acre, which I think is getting a little, a little ridiculous Yeah. <laughs> at some point. Like I said, the quality, um, the quality and yield relationship is, is not quite linear like that. But, you know, I would say average, you know, your lo- quality wines are probably made from uh, grapes that are uh, yielding three to four tons an acre mm-hmm. for reds. Okay. And so, you know, another part of that quality component too is uh, controlled through irrigation, which is really is related to yield, but can almost be a separate component. Um, you know, with, with us being able to control our stress level in the vines here, we can keep the berries really small. Um, and so all of that mouthfeel you get, uh, the majority of the mouthfeel and the tannins comes from the grape skin, and then all of the color comes from the grape skin as well. Mm. And so the smaller that berry is, the higher the ratio of skin to juice is. So you extract more um, more color and more tannin and get a more intense wine. So this, this is fascinating. I, I grew up in Sonoma County, California, and I'm, I'm learning more about this stuff. So uh, I, I hope everyone listening is in, enjoying this Viticulture 101 as well. So I, I assume then for the, uh, the desuckering and the shoot thinning that happens in the spring? Yes. Yep. Yeah. We start that when the shoots are about four to six inches tall, and we're able to do both operations in the same path. Okay. So if you can imagine, there's, there's like a, if you could imagine a wishbone or a pendulum hanging over the trellis, hanging over those vines. And at the bottom of that wishbone, there's like two paper towel sized metal barrels. Hmm. And each of those barrels has 64 holes in it. We fill those holes with like, uh, it's like three eighths or half inch um, diameter uh, tubing, uh, spaghetti tubing that it comes in and uh, that's what's beating the vines. So it spins inwards and downwards and it knocks off all of those suckers that are originating this year on that permanent trunk. And then it can knock off shoots that are originating from that cordon, depending on how high you have the operator run those barrels through the, as it's dry as he's driving through the vineyard. Oh, wow. So it's, it's not really, I, I would assume you'd want kind of a clean break. It sounds kind of rough. Yeah. You know, it's actually those green shoots come off really easily, especially when you hit them that early at four to six inches of growth. Okay. And as they keep maturing over that, you know, you have like maybe a month window to get this operation done. And at the very beginning, you could come through there with your fingers and flick off the growth that this tool is removing. Mm-hmm. And by the time you finish at the end, some of those shoots might be almost three feet tall. And at that point, they're coming off a lot more difficult because all those green shoots, if you leave them there long enough, they're going to um, have secondary cell wall thickening of the xylem and lignification is going to happen and that's going to become wood. So that process does begin occurring later in the season. So the longer you wait, the harder it is for them to come off. But initially, they, they come off really easily. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, and so then, yeah, you've done, so you've done your pruning. Uh, if, you've, if you're doing any planting, you know, that year you've done your planting around Valentine's Day or, or, or right after. Uh, then, then you've gone through and done your, your desuckering and your shoot thinning. And so, uh, so now, you know, 
what's the next thing you've got to worry about? Now you need to send folks into your vineyard on foot um, for the time being and, and lower your canopy wires. So at, at this point, everything we've talked about still, your canopy wires that held up your canopy last year are still existing um, where they were last year up in your, on those tall posts I explained earlier. And so now that, now that the shoot synergy sucker has come through, you can move them down below the cordon, between the cordon and the ground, where that de-sucker shoot thinner was just operating, and store them there and let the canopies keep growing for another few weeks. And then when those canopies get full size a few weeks later, you then return by hand and move those wires back up on both sides of the canopy to form what we call a VSP, which is a vertical shoot positioning. So by, by doing that, that wild canopy that's growing in every direction, by bringing those wires back up, you orientate all those um, shoots now vertically, and you have a nice, neat canopy that's uh, easy to mechanize uh, further. So wh why, why do you need to drop it in order for that to happen? Well, because you're really using those wires to lift the canopy. Not only are they holding the canopy once you place them back into the post, but as you raise them back up, you're using them to lift up all those shoots, all that canopy. Okay. So it's really a it's really a canopy li canopy lifting operation at the si same time, aided by those wires. Okay. Pull them up. So you lower them to make sure you catch the entire canopy for when you're going to lift it. Exactly. Otherwise, you'd be kind of fighting all the tendrils and trying yeah. to get beneath those three and four foot shoots. It's doable, just very inefficient that way. Okay. And for those listening that are thinking canopy, what the heck are they talking about? You, you basically mean, because it's coming out of the winter, it's going to be all wood uh, and then the leaves are going to grow. And, and that's and that's when a canopy is formed because the leaves have grown. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. We're, we're removing 90% of what grew last year. We remove via pruning every year and then basically replace that entire canopy with uh, brand new growth. That starts in uh, in April. Okay. And then is the next place where you've kind of incorporated more mechanization in harvest, or is there something between the two that, that has also been more more mechanized through technology? Yep. So we're uh, so standard practice in eastern Washington is to do some sort of de-leafing from the fruiting zone. Um, and in some white varieties, you might do no leafing or very little de-leafing. Um, but in red varieties, uh, basically every acre is de-leafed. And some folks are doing that by hand. A lot of folks are doing it by machine. Um, we're definitely doing it by machine with what's called a, a suck and cut de-leafer. But we use that leafer a little early and get a dual purpose out of it. So it's made to basically suck those leaves into it and remove them from the fruiting zone. But if you do it really early, um, like pre-bloom or just after bloom, uh, which is earlier than it's designed to do, you'll actually suck clusters in, oh. which would typically be bad. But in this case, we're doing it intentionally that early and counting how many clusters are remaining and using it as a uh, fruit reduction mechanism hmm. to lower our yield down to our, our target. All right. So I've got a bunch of questions. So if you about can that. imagine the way... <laughs> Oh sure, yeah. Go ahead. First of all, uh, first of all, why do you why do you want to reduce the amount of leaves around the fruiting area? So there, there's a number of reasons there. So uh, one reason for any variety, white or red, is uh, better airflow. So you're going to reduce the relative humidity, hmm. uh, which is good for uh, reducing powdery mildew pressure and botrytis pressure. And then you're also going to increase the efficacy of those preventive fungicide sprays for to, for those same two diseases. So you're going to get better uh, coverage of your actual fruit, which is what you're trying to protect if you remove some of those leaves. Um, so that's an added benefit. Uh, a big reason why you're doing this is sunshine into the canopy is going to contact the grapes and it's going to help with a few things. So I talked earlier about um, herbaceousness in, in grape skins. Well, that arises from a, a chemical called methoxypyrazine, and that gives you like a bell pepper, 
type herbaceous uh, flavors. It's typically considered undesirable by, by most, by most wine consumers and winemakers. And so it accumulates in the grapes naturally. You can limit the accumulation by controlling the vigor of your canopy, which is the rate of shoot growth or the ultimate height of your canopy before it stops growing. Um, but you can also eliminate it um, through hang time, through reduced for, for keeping the vines in the, on, hanging on the grapes longer before harvesting, but also by exposing them to UV radiation. Hmm. And so by removing those, le- those leaves from the fruiting zone, you can uh, help uh, speed up the process of methoxypyrazine breakdown and get rid of those herbaceous flavors in your grapes. And then in addition to sugar accumulation, sunlight also helps with uh, color development in the skins of those uh, red wine grapes as well. It's fascinating. I mean, just just the thought of, you know, 3,300 acres, which is just, a, you know, massive uh, amount of, of land that you are able to manage down to the amount of leaves that are close to the fruiting area is, it's pretty, it's really incredible. Um, I, I did want to ask you too, though, about, I know you're getting the dual benefit of not only removing those leaves, but also uh, thinning the fruit. Um, how, how do you, how do you calculate what the right number of fruit is um i mean is that just like linear foot per acre and you know you want so much per acre and so you need so much per linear linear foot or you know how do you make sure you take the right amount of uh of fruit off the vine yep yeah definitely everything we're doing is we're looking at linear feet per acre uh, over a wide swath of ground to make sure we're catching a true average I will say one thing that's cool about both the shoot thinning operation and the early deleafing for crop reduction is that these two operations tend to become more aggressive as it's necessary, meaning the vines that tend to have more growth because maybe they didn't get pruned as well or they tend to have more clusters tend to get have more removed mm. just because of the way these tools work. They basically touch, you know, remove everything that they touch in those areas. And so the more congested areas tend to get a little more love and attention uh, just through sheer uh, luck as you're coming through that way. So that is nice. And it, both of these operations, I feel like add a bit of uniformity to this mechanization process that maybe was hard for somebody to see after the pruning. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a lot of counting. I'll never tell anybody that mechanization is easier than managing it by hand. It's tons easier to do, to do this by hand. You need to take a lot more data to make sure you're comfortable um, with what you're leaving in the vineyard afterwards. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think the mechanization will improve the, the, the data collection aspect to where, where you won't, you know, you won't feel that way? I do. I know there's been a lot of folks working for a long time on yield estimation. And, uh, you know, I know Terry Bates group out of Cornell is working on uh, a lot of data um, oriented mechanization where they're able to implement uh, variable rate mechanization yeah. to be more aggressive and less aggressive, uh, depending on uh, how you want to treat uh, different parts of the vineyard. And so I think all of that and automation is going to be huge in the future um, to help play a role there as well, too. Hmm, cool. But for now, it's definitely a lot of data collection. We probably uh, we probably collect about five to 10 times as much data as we did before, as far as like cluster counts and bud counts and things along those nature as we're doing these operations. Okay. And, and is is that machine the machine that is uh, that is deleafing, but also grabbing fruiting bodies because you do it so early? Uh, is that able to track in real time? Like, hey, here's how much fruit you're you're pulling off, or you just kind of know what setting to set it to? No, yeah, it's literally a supervisor doing counts ahead of the machine, and then going back to those same vine, same vine area and counting after the machine's passed. Yeah. 
and we do that over a few rows and we, we get comfortable and then we uh, we set the machine to that setting that gets us the count we want and we let it we let it loose. Okay. And there's still people vis- visually checking checking uh, based on that reference area to make sure it still looks the same and, and people counting a little bit as well to make sure we're still happy. Yeah. Wow. And, and I imagine with 20, 20 plus varieties, um, uh, they all are on a bit of their own clock as far as, as what stage in development they're on. Some are going to be uh, ready earlier than others. And so you're probably just starting with early varieties and working your way to later varieties. Is that right? Yeah, that's a great point to bring up. In fairness, we do have 20 plus varieties, but five varieties really make up about 2000 acres. Um, so we do have some pretty good, you know, chunks of acres that are that are similar varieties to move from. But yeah, you're right. You know, Cabernet tends to be a late bud breaking variety. It's also a variety that we have a lot of acres of. Um, so that tends to be it tends to be a, a final push at the end to try to get all that done on time. And we're starting with earlier varieties like, say, Chardonnay, which uh, break bud very early. So they have that earlier shoot growth and earlier bloom and fruit set. Mm, so cool. Um, okay. So yeah, you've, you've done the, the fruit thing and the, in the, the de leafing. Um, and, and then, uh, so, so what's next as far as, uh, getting back in the vineyard? So we'll continue de leafing for a while because the, the vineyard blocks where the tonnage goal is correct. will still need to be de leaf for quality reasons, like we talked about. So we'll wrap that up. And then, uh, you know, that's really the last major cultural operation. Obviously we've been spraying, you know, doing cultivation, spraying herbicides, spraying fungicides this whole time. Um, but that's the the last major cultural operation before we get into harvest, which is uh, which is also done mechanically. Yeah, so those harvesters are are pretty amazing. I, I've had the chance to see a few of them uh, in in action in person. Uh, so they basically just straddle uh, the vine and and shake off the fruit. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's interesting. Harvesting across many types of crops just involves a lot of different uh, forms of vibration. Yeah, <laughs> grapes grapes are no different. But uh, they've really gotten uh, high tech, though. So it's just like you said, it straddles the vine. There's a series of bow rods that are uh, shaking directly in the, uh, you know, near the fruiting zone. And uh, you'll get some whole clusters that drop, but generally it's individual berries that are falling off those, those rackets, those rachises. And they fall onto catch plates at the bottom of the harvester that then angles them down onto a conveyor, which brings them to the top of the harvester where we have sorting tables. And these sorting tables are really where the new technology is. So in the past, those grapes would come through, go through a fan system that'll, you know, blow out all the leaves and, and whatnot, and everything else would go into the, the grape trailer. But now we have these sorting tables on top of our onboard bins. So there's different types of harvesters. The harvesters we use have onboard bins, like a dump truck. Uh, each bin holds about a ton and a half. Um, and so before the fruit travels into those bins, it goes across these tables. And these tables have rollers on them. Uh, the gap between the rollers uh, starts small and gets progressively larger. So basically, w- uh, waste like leaves and petioles and rachises will will keep running across those rollers and eventually cascade off the edge, which out fall without falling into the bin. And the berries, depending on what size they are, will eventually fall into one of those gaps between the rollers. Hmm. And so it's a way of effectively destemming the fruit before it gets to the winery, which for decades has always been a process done at the winery. Yeah. So we're able to deliver some pretty high quality fruit with these, with these harvesters. And uh, I want to get more into the winery stuff, but before we do, I, I seem to remember growing up, there was a bit of uh, an old school mentality that, you know, uh, I'm not letting a mechanical harvester in my vineyard because we are only the highest quality. And so we use you know, hand harvesting. Is there still some of that around or is pretty much everybody embraced the new technology? 
There's nationally, there's definitely still some of that around in Eastern Washington. Even there's, there's still some, but it's definitely the minority. Mm-hmm. Um, even for people who aren't heavily mechanized, um, like we are, um, you know, the majority of the acres in Washington state are mechanically harvested. And that goes for, uh, you know, boutique wineries and, um, and, you know, uh, larger scale operations, uh, that are making cheaper bottles as wine as well. Um, but there's definitely folks that still believe in hand harvesting and have a strong opinion about it. But in general, you know, we haven't had a customer that's demanded it. All of our customers have been, uh, on board and have really been happy with the quality they're getting from these new uh, selective harvesting machines. In fact, we've had some winemakers actually request that that type of harvest now. Okay. And uh, of all the technologies that we've already talked about here, uh, which of them, which of them put you on the more um, uh, progressive side of the scale? Meaning like which of the technologies are uh, not a whole lot of, uh, of vineyard managers are utilizing right now? So there's, it's starting to ramp up a little bit. More people are kind of implementing this program, but we were the first ones in the state with the Polonc TRP pruner. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're using and five kind of those now? Kind of, yes, yep. Wow. And then the, the shoot thinning and desuckering technology, that's been around for a long time. And there's, uh, you know, St. Michelle Wine Estates has been playing around on a very small scale with that kind of technology for a while. Um, but again, everything's really kind of starting to ramp up now. Uh, I, I think it's the combination of, you know, what we've done and how quickly we've scaled and the fact that we've had really cooperative winemakers that have been open to like keeping the wine separately in the early years and showing the quality's good. Mm-hmm. And so there's just not much of an argument anymore whether mechanization is as good as hand. And so more, more folks are jumping into the arena. But definitely the typical operation is not using uh, the TRP machine pruner. And they're not using a de-sucker or shoot thinning machine. And uh, no one's really using uh, the suck and cut leafers previously for uh, removing crop. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely all of that's uh, beginning to scale up as more people are uh, having labor issues and more and more winemakers uh, get on board with um, mechanization and, and quality. And as far as the the, the, the um, winemakers go, it, how does wine usually work? And you can share as many of, of your details as you want or don't want. But generally speaking, does does uh, you know wine grapes that are grown in Washington go to wineries in Washington, or is there much movement? Um, you know, across states or across the country? Oh, sure. You know, there is, there's a, surely the vast majority, 99% of the grapes stay in Washington. Uh, But there is, you know, I hear about grapes going into Oregon, Idaho. Um, I've heard as far as uh, the Dakotas. Oh, wow. And Minnesota on a very small scale. Um, But I've heard of guys selling a ton or two of fruit to guys that, that far east from here. But the vast majority stays in eastern Washington. Okay. And, and as, a, uh, as a vineyard manager or director of viticulture, rather, um, what, what problem do you hope technology solves for you next? Well, selfishly, one, yeah, I would say wire moving. I feel like we're very close there. There's a lot of really good ideas. The problem is everyone's trellis is so different. So nobody's really, no one's really gotten excited and, and built a wire lifting machine uh, that serves my needs yet. And I think we're getting close there, but that would be a, that would be a big one because, you know, wire moving tends to be a very um, short windowed operation. You know, you need a lot of people for a very short period of time and that can be very difficult to staff. Um, so that would be a, a, an operation that would be nice to have um, mechanized. And then beyond that, I would just say, uh, you know, getting to where there's more, um, you know, automatic data collection in the field um, as far as bud counting and different yield components 
and then being able to automate the tractor driving operation and these tools. And I think all that's, it's all getting very close, but, you know, tying that together and being able to do some of the variable rate stuff that Terry Bates is, is interested in looking at right now. Yeah. No, that uh, definitely sounds sounds like it could be on the horizon. Do you use any uh, seasonal labor still? Uh, yes, we do for our wire lifting. We're not we don't have enough people to get through our acres quickly enough and lift all the wires up ahead of our deleasing machines. Okay, makes sense. Well, and Richard, this has been awesome. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people are going to love this just to actually understand viticulture a little bit better and kind of the, the management side, but also the technology that's being implemented sort of what stage it's in. Um, if somebody wants to kind of support what you're doing out there at Mercer, I mean, is there a way, is there a wine they can buy that directly supports you? Or is there some place we could send them to at least uh, try to support you in any way? Well, you know, we do sell wine under the label Mercer Estates and the label uh, Mercer Family Vineyards. And uh, we're, we're in most states. Okay, find it. Mercer Estates and Mercer Family Vineyards and go pick it up and tell them Richard sent you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, Richard, I really appreciate this. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, Tim, thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much to Richard for being on the show. I, I really enjoyed that. I, I just had so much fun kind of learning about the whole process uh, of growing grapes. And anyway, I, I know my enthusiasm showed through, but I hope you shared it uh, listening on your end. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm at Tim Hamrich on Twitter. And I also thought it was just cool that uh, there we could actually go out and take action. If you just love this episode, you can go out and buy some wine that came from Richard's Grapes, probably in your local uh, grocery store, depending on where you live. And I, I love that concept and I want to continue on that concept. So I mentioned in the last episode, I want to mention it again. If you know any producers that sell direct to consumer, can sell online and we can put on the show, give them a platform and ask you to go out and buy their stuff, I would love to talk to them. So make sure you Send me an email intro, tim at aggrad.com. And I absolutely have to give a shout out here to uh, the guy who made this episode possible, Dennis Devitt. Thank you so much. Uh, he's been a longtime listener and supporter of the show. Dennis, I really, really appreciate this for uh, for you making this intro happen and making this episode happen. So uh, thank you for your ongoing support and just really, really appreciate this. Anyway, thank you to all of you uh, for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. And, and most of all for your desire to be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem and your curiosity and your entrepreneurialism uh, to build a better food system for all of us. So thank you. We'll be back next week. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. <laughs>